I'm Charlene Kay. I make music under the name Kay, and you're listening to Golden Hour, a show about Asian musicianship, creativity, and intersectional solidarity. Thanks for joining us. My guest on the podcast today is the formidable Ian Chang, a musician I hugely respect and look up to and who I'm honored to call my friend. I first found out about Ian when I auditioned for San Fermin eight years ago in 2014. And I saw that this band Sun Lux was opening for them on tour. And when I checked it out, it just rang a bell in this weird way. And I remembered that when I was a junior in college, I went to go see Sufjan Stevens play at this music festival in Northern Michigan. And they had this contest, they had the songwriting contest that Ryan, who was the front man of Sun Lux, won. And he won the opportunity to play at this festival opening for Sufjan. And that performance was the first ever iteration of Sun Lux. So it's just wild that the worlds have collided since then. And flash forward to me being in San Fermin in the present day. And now Sun Lux's lineup consists of Ryan, their guitarist Rafiq Batia, and their drummer Ian. Although Ian is most known for that band, he has an immense list of credits, which include drumming and collaborating with Moses Sumney, Landlady, Rubble Bucket, and many others. Last year, he released his most recent full-length record, Belonging, which was released on City Slang Records and garnered critical acclaim by everyone from Modern Drummer to NPR. We talk about how we both lived in Hong Kong around the same time when we were kids, how we went to neighboring international schools, and our full-fledged obsession with Travis Barker and early 2000s pop-punk, which seems to be a common thread in this podcast to my delight. That was a clip of the song Food Court from Ian's most recent album, Belonging. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ian, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Charlene. So I, I met you um, several years ago. You lived in New York about for about 10 years. And before that, you lived in Hong Kong. And that's something that we share in common because I also lived in Hong Kong in second and third grade. I went to HKIS. Oh, crazy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> then we were, I wouldn't be surprised if we had like some sort of like connective tissue, like mutual friend of a friend kind of thing. Cause I mean, I was, I was at CIS second and third grade, which is. Oh, uh, wow. So yeah, we were not, there for the same years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. And I mean, I was in C- I was at CIS for much longer than just second and third grade, but technically we were like in the same international school bubble for a couple of years right. in Hong Kong, which is pretty weird to think about. <laughs> I have such fond memories of being there. I mean, I was I was so young, but I lived in Singapore for first grade and then for second and third grade, I lived in Hong Kong. Then I moved to Hawaii and then I moved to Arizona again. But yeah. I feel like those those years, I still would love to go visit Hong Kong again because I just remember it being such a formative time for me. Do you have fond memories of living there? Yeah, I lived in Hong Kong from when I was born until I was fourteen, and it was it was a good place to to grow up. Um, it's a super metropolitan kind of vibrant city, so I think that definitely shaped like who I am in a lot of ways. Yeah. And were you born there? Yes. Yeah, born cool. and raised. Yeah. 
So what brought you to the States then? Uh, just, I think, you know, my folks uh, really wanted me to have like an American education. And, um, you know, I, I'm privileged enough to be able to pursue that. And so they, they, they kind of, my brother did it first. He like went for like high school to the States and then that kind of was a success for him. So they were like, Oh, like you should do it too. And and I did it and it was, it was great. I, I actually, it was, it was a good thing for me. Um, and I don't actually really recall like kind of, you know, aside from being culture shocked in, in all the normal ways, it wasn't like that, terrible of a transition um which i feel like you your experience growing up has been even more so like <laughs> jumbled like living in different cultures and stuff um, yeah yeah it's it's definitely made me very adaptable and in that way yeah. i think there's something about getting used to different types of environments very quickly that's lent itself to touring and i really <laughs> like being in different environments almost totally. every day totally. i love playing in different bands and you know acclimating mm. to different social environments every day. And it just, I feel like that sort of prepared me for a bit of a nomadic lifestyle. And are your parents still in Hong Kong? They are. They, they had never left. Um, but uh, all of, I have two siblings and all of us left and the other two went back, but I'm the only one that's still gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I mean, I definitely remember when I lived in Hong Kong feeling this identity confusion. I never, I couldn't put language to it at the time because I was too young, but I knew that I identified more with American culture than I did with Asian culture, uh, even not living in America, but being so obsessed with these TV shows like Melissa, um, or what's this, Clarissa Explains It All, and Nickelodeon and MTV. And I named my dog Cindy because I saw um, an MTV video of Cindy Lauper singing time after time on the TV. And I was really receptive to any music video. Did you have that as well? Did you have MTV or anything growing up? No, I had a pitiful four channels uh, growing up. And <laughs> one of the channels was literally just like a, a photo of like stocks and it would just like change <laughs> and like some like classical music playing. So I really had three channels um, growing up. So TV wasn't really a big part of my childhood. I think the ways in which I got American culture was going to the movies, but all the American movies would come out like a lot later than they did in the States. And then, so there's like a delay. And then once like, you know, Napster and LimeWire and Kaza like started mm -hmm. happening, like that's like, that's when I like would download every music video of every band that I liked. Yes. Like it was, I, I kind of like became obsessed. Um, yeah. What were some of those first artists? I mean, I, I was a huge like kind of pop punk kid uh, growing Same. up in Hong Kong. So, uh, Green Day, Blink-182, like all like the big, the big obvious ones I was like really obsessed with. And then there was a, there was a website called absolutepunk.net that yeah. I started to kind of explore. I can see the font so clearly in my brain. It's like a grungy, like papyrusy kind of font. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's where I went to discover bands. Um, so. Yes. Did you ever go to Warp Tour? No, I never, that was like one of those things that like living in Hong Kong, I, you know, was aware of Warp Tour and I was aware of all of like the record labels like Drive Through and Epitaph and all this stuff. And that was sort of like where I was like, oh, like that's where I want to be when mm -hmm. I become a musician someday. But yeah. by the time I became a musician, I'd kind of outgrown a lot of that stuff. But that was like where, that was like a chunk of American culture that I 
latched onto uh, my, you know, my in my adolescence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So was that one of the first experiences you had that made you want to play music? Or did you have a lessons or anything in a, on another instrument before that? I had lessons and stuff before I kind of, and I kind of had like weird, um, I had a pretty open, like my mom was really cool and she would let me go to the HMV, which was sort of like, I guess, a version of, it's kind of like Tire Records, but right, I right. guess it's probably a UK company or something. Mm -hmm. Huge in Hong Kong. And that's where I'd go and like listen to all the listening stations and stuff. Oh yes, for and, hours. And so there, there, I was into actually all, a lot of different kinds of stuff. Uh, one of which is hilariously like, I got really into like Ibiza, like compilations and like, <laughs> like club like techno, like, and also like pop trance and stuff like that. Oh my God. Um, like, like Darude Sandstorm yes, vibes. Yes. Yeah. And BT <laughs> and like Alice DJ and all this stuff. And mm -hmm. um, I actually remember really clearly one time I was like in the car with my folks and I like hijacked the stereo and was like playing some of that stuff. And my mom was like, I don't understand why you like <laughs> this music. It's so repetitive. It's the same thing over and over again. And I remember telling her, I was like, I was like, it's not about that. Like the things that change, change very slowly and like, and have like a big impact. Mm -hmm. or that's like so, <laughs> that's so insightful as a, for a small kid. You're like, mom, you have to have patience. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally something I like think about all the time. Like when I'm making music to this day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so telling for little Ian to have that type of really profound insight about instrumental music and it really i mean in a, in, a, in a meta way it reflects in the way that you compose and sort of the patience that you that pays off when you listen to music like yours that has so much detail and you it you find motifs that pay off the, the longer you listen to it so i see that being a very distinct influence <laughs> <laughs> thanks so your parents having stayed in hong kong this whole time and mm -hmm. you growing up in that household, what was their response like when you started to show a real affinity towards music and exploring this as a potential career choice? Well, at first, you know, the affinity came early. I think I started piano lessons when I was young, like six years old. Uh, very lucky to have done that. It's like a great base for anyone who's trying to like do music. But, and at first, you know, they were like, this is great. Like he's, he's showing uh, discipline and like initiative and kind of like latching on to this like extracurricular activity that can also help him get into a good high school and a good college. Yes, you know exactly. I mean? <laughs> Music lessons are only a means to get into a good college. And then when you fall in love with it, they're like, wait, we didn't expect you to actually want to love, love this that much. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, the, the conversation started probably like when I was in high school, I think by the time I was a junior, I knew that's what I wanted to do uh, mm -hmm. for school and college, um, or at least part of what I was wanted to do. And um, it's been a long road since then. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that I did to sort of prove my commitment was like, I, uh, and I got accepted into the Juilliard's like pre-college program while I was in high school. So I would like commute from Jersey to the city every Saturday wow. um, to do that for a while. Uh, and 
they were excited about that because Juilliard is like the Harvard of music schools, yes. you know? Yes, um, the name recognition. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then of course, I dropped out before <laughs> completing it. Uh, and uh, because Such well, a that, rebel. Was also, that was also because I, was, I decided I wanted to go into school for jazz and I wanted to like focus on getting my stuff together for auditions for that. But I mean, it's, yeah, it was a long road. And, you know, since that I went to school uh, for music and also minored in philosophy and kind of did all this stuff and then started working as a musician. And even after, like, I graduated college, like years after, and I'd already been touring, like, I think my parents were always kind of like, okay, so like, when are you going to like pivot and do something more practical, right? And Mm -hmm. so that bubble kind of burst for me I can't remember how many years ago now but probably not that long ago like I was in my late 20s maybe even like Mm -hmm. you know like and they'd seen me play concerts like and like they'd seen that I've like been able to make a living for myself but my like I I finally like sat down and I was just like I'm not like changing course like you need to stop bringing this up that like maybe yeah. I could like go into law still or whatever you know um uh, yeah. and it was painful for me to continually like yeah. hear that um so but um all things said it's- yeah all things said I will say that my parents um the more I think about where they come from and kind of like their understanding of the world and the way they see things like they've been extremely definitely supportive in so many ways but also like understanding um, at the end of the day and I'm really grateful but that doesn't mean that it was like in a smooth ride kind of gaining their uh acceptance and I actually think that the the deepest form of acceptance came this past year with the pandemic where I was like still able to make ends meet and kind of like do my thing without touring and and do like production from home and stuff and they're like oh wow like cool like yeah, this is gonna work <laughs> you know i don't know right right yeah. yeah you're still putting food on the table you're still making ends meet somehow yeah it feels like a rejection of who you are what what you love and what you do the stakes are higher than just like wanting to be an artist it's about like wanting to be wanting to be seen wanting to be accepted by those who love you mm-hmm. it's another fight in addition to wanting to make a career so how did you get into drumming and what were some of your first projects? Well, I actually started drumming in when I was nine. So I like was taking lessons for like classical percussion mainly um, mm-hmm. and like did orchestra and things like that. Um, and obviously I like also got into playing the kit and as all of this was happening at the same time as like my classical education was happening at the same time as me like being really into uh, pop punk, you know, um, yes. <laughs> and like idolizing Travis Barker. So I kind oh, of, man. uh, yeah, that kind of, so it started early. And then by the time I was in high school, it really sort of, I think one of the ways in which I was able to adapt to a new environment and kind of like make connections with people was through music. I remember mm-hmm. I was very shy, very quiet, uh, wasn't talking to too many folks. And then there was a talent show where I like played um, drums and then suddenly like I like people were talking to me and I was like, oh, cool. You know, (laughs) I don't know, like, um, and it kind of became part of my social identity. Do you remember what you played? 
me and one of my few friends at the time, we played uh, Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin. So Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great first song to play. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then did you have a pop punk band at any point? I did in middle school um, in Hong yes. Kong. Yeah. We were called yes. First Hand. <laughs> and I like drew a little logo, you know, of like. <laughs> like know, the rock like, hand? Yeah, the rock hand with like, the, with, like uh, sharpie nails and yeah. Yes. It was, it was the whole thing. What do you think about. The early 2000s, like Travis Barker, like emo coming back. It's like really popular right now. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. I I have to say that I don't really have like a soft spot in my heart for that type of music anymore. And like it doesn't come out in my music. It really like served, I feel like, an emotional purpose. And I think that that music, um, interestingly, kind of like, kids of a certain age keep finding that music. Like I remember being on tour once and Sum 41 was playing down the street from where uh, I was playing um, in Quebec City of all places, which is like kind of, you know, a big market for them probably, I think. Uh, but this was probably 2011 or something, maybe 12. And I remember seeing the line out the door and I was like, these are all like 12 to yes. 16 year old kids. Yeah. Who and I, I wasn't aware. Maybe some forty one's been putting out music steadily, but I don't think so. And I, I think they just, yeah. It's not like the audiences grew with the band. Like most, uh, for the most part, like moved on. I would say, and then like kids of a certain age kept finding it and relating to it. So it it must like hit some nerve, you know, for uh, for yeah. for angsty angsty there, teens. Yeah, I know. There's <laughs> something. There's something about it because I had the same experience. Uh, walking by Webster Hall a couple of years ago and Taking Back Sunday was on the marquee. And it was the same thing. It was like teenagers, like young teenagers that were around the block. And I was like, this is this was my first concert when I was 15. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that it, the snake has like started to eat its own tail with the teenagers today. That is wild. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, it's interesting to be old enough and have been involved with music long enough that like, we're like really seeing like the music of our youth, like come back in a way that's sort of like, oh, like that's like old music coming back. You know what I mean? Totally. So from pop punk, you're widely known for playing with Sun Lux, who mm -hmm. I have a, a bit of a connection with because I used to play in San Fermin. Mm -hmm. And the tour before I joined San Fermin, Sun Lux and San Fermin did a pretty epic five week tour together. And how did you come into the equation? Uh, so Ryan kind of was Sunlux as a solo project for uh, three records. Um, and when the third record came out, Lanterns, he it kind of was garnering enough attention that uh, he it like set a precedent for touring because he was never someone who was like trying to be on the road all the time. Like I think he was like working in music houses, making music for ads, making music for dance, making music for film. Like he was very much a studio guy. Um, and uh, although he's a great performer and he like kind of didn't, I feel like see that in himself in some ways until like we really did it. And, and it, it became a, a clear that he really knows how to do that. <laughs> and, um, but he, it's funny because the first time I encountered Sunlux's music was a little before I started playing uh, with Ryan and, that was for a My Brightest Diamond, like, 
uh, basically Sunlux uh, did like a remix EP for My Brightest Diamond um, that I cannot remember the name for now. Uh, but there's like a song on there that My Brightest Diamond wanted to do a version of it that was like more acoustic and like a live video for it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was somehow like brought in to kind of arrange the percussion parts and play kit for this uh, video. And the video exists. Um, and this is before hearing like Sunlux with Ryan's voice and everything, but this is like his remake. And I was just like, well, like whatever's happening is awesome. Like this is yeah. sick. And like rhythmically there were like these really interesting things happening. And um, I remember being like very taken by it. Um, so it was cool that like a, a couple of years later um, I got hit up to play uh, sort of at first as like a gun for hire um, to tour with Sunlux. Um, mm -hmm. And after the first sort of round of touring that we did, which included that San Fermin run, so I think on that run, I was still not like a band member yet. Mm -hmm. I believe that the show that we played in LA on that run um, at the Natural History Museum right. was like a show that Sunlux's manager, Michael, came out to see it. And then after he saw that show, he was like, Ryan, like you should consider kind of like making this a trio because this is a thing, you know? Yeah. And um, and so that that's after after basically kind of like, the after it was clear that the chemistry was very potent creatively and on stage and everything um it kind of uh ryan invited invited us into the fold and and mm. and since then it's been great yeah <laughs> yeah you guys are such a force it's very clear that you're all musical kindred spirits so when you guys make sun lux records is it collaborative now at this point it is collaborative and um you know ryan definitely uh leads the charge and mm -hmm. most of the material like starts and ends with him um mm -hmm. we rafik and i don't really dip our hands into like the lyric writing or the top line like aspects of it mm -hmm. we usually kind of build the tracks um together and then ryan writes like the melody and and, and that stuff but um yeah it is collaborative and it's only become more collaborative over the years and we actually finished a film score for a movie oh, cool. um, and that was the most collaborative thing we've ever done like a lot nice. of like and we did it you know throughout covid so it was all just from wow. our respective home studios and um and it's exciting the movie is actually like a gonna be like it's it's like a it's an aapi kind of movie and it's like uh Michelle Yeoh like stars in it and it's um, like sick. it's it's uh it's that's another thing that I was able to tell my parents that they were just like whoa yeah. <laughs> <laughs> recognition yeah um but yeah that was that was the most collaborative thing we've done where sort of like Rafiq would take the lead on some some cues and I would take the lead on some cues but like kind of gather things from everyone and it was it was really exciting and i think it's something that we'll probably want to do again is do a film score together um mm. and in some ways it probably will change the way we collaborate uh, moving forward it's so clear that the people that you work with or who choose to work with you want your unique voice. And I hear your unique personality and style in Moses Semney's stuff and in Landlady and in Rubble Bucket. And 
you don't hire Ian Chang for just a four on the floor pocket drummer. Like you have such a wild imagination. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to have been able to carve out somewhat of a niche. Um, and I'm blessed that like that's the case. And it, you know, when people reach out to me to work with me, they're looking for me. Um, mm -hmm. It is funny because so, every now and then I get this like itch where I'm just like, oh, be so nice to actually just like track a really straightforward record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should join a disco band. Yes. Just keep that keep that metronome on the whole time. Because <laughs> I do have yeah, there is a place in my heart for for simple kind of just yeah. But you know, I'm I can't complain. You know, uh, yeah, very very lucky. One of my favorite tracks that you've done is Moses's track Viral. What was that collaboration like? So that, uh, he sent me that to play on and I kind of like did like a rough tracking of it here, but then, and at first I was like, ah, oh, this is probably too busy what I'm doing. I don't know if that's going to really work, but he was into it. And then he had me out, uh, to Asheville, uh, to actually like properly record on a number of songs. And I think we had three days of recording out there and it was yeah it was very inspiring three days uh and i love Asheville too so that that also was nice um when we recorded it i pretty much played what i uh played when i did like a rough recording in dallas um but like i played it better because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I didn't didn't totally have it together when i when i was first coming up with some of the ideas um but yeah. he's Moses is someone who's very um, particular, and uh, he is also just very tireless in how thorough he wants to kind of like go into detail and get things right. Um, there's some songs that I, I can't tell you how many takes I did, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, I think specifically there's a song, uh, "Lonely World." We basically spent like a day on that one song, like wow. getting the drums for it. Yeah. As someone who's collaborated so much with other people and has served as a sideman, how does that inform your own music and how you see yourself as a solo artist? You know, I think it took me. So there was a, the 10 year period that I lived in New York. Uh, I'd say at least like seven or eight of those years, I was gigging constantly. Uh, and what started out as like playing like in a ton of different bands in New York and like playing around New York, like ended up turning into like touring for like a less number of bands, but like touring for a few. And it was just like such a crazy period of time in my life where I kind of never had any time or space to even think about like what I wanted to do if I wanted, if I were to do anything on my own and I, I actually didn't really have much of a drive to do so for a long time. Um, but when it started kind of happening, um, it was actually spurred by, um, me finding this window into electronic production that was like tied to my hands and drumming. 
Um, and then after that, like after about a year of that, I moved to Dallas where I was just like, I don't know anyone. And I still, my existence here pretty much exists within like the four walls of my home, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I think, yeah, I didn't realize it at the time when I was like living in New York and then touring and everything, but like I needed time to process like all of that. And I needed time to kind of refine sort of what I like, you know, and refine my taste in terms of like what, like it would come out sounding like as my own music. And I'm still trying to figure that out in a lot of ways and trying to figure out like where, where I'm going next. And it's, I feel like the way I'm talking about it makes it sound like sound more calculated than it is. It's more just also just like making stuff alone and like without outside influence. I love collaborating, but I think, uh, in a lot of ways, at least getting started on my own project, it took a lot of me like shutting out any outside, uh, kind of collaborators and influences and, and like really just spending hours and hours on my own searching, you know what I mean? Yeah. You got to get quiet. You've been, you were touring for so long and it was, it's hard to be creative with so much chaos happening around you. Yeah. And, you know, I think both of us are kind of interested in a lot of different kinds of music, have played a lot of different kinds of music, uh, played different roles in different kinds of music. So um, sometimes that can become kind of difficult to really hone anything. Um, I think it's a good thing, but also like it, it, it is something where it's it's not like, oh, like I just play for like this type of band. So like when I do my own thing, it's going to kind of be like that. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it was something that kind of took some time. And I'm still yeah. wondering, like when I when I listen to my, when I like kind of like look back on the record I put out last year, I'm like, is this a thing? Like, is this a sound? Like, I guess so. I don't know. It's, it's me. <laughs> you know? It um, definitely yeah. is. And I'm so glad that you took that time to reflect and take take the time that it needed to come out with this album, Belonging, because I'm such a big fan of it. I've listened to it so much. It was very critically acclaimed. It came out on City Slang Records earlier this year. And I love. I think part of why I resonate with it so viscerally is because it recalls a lot of the first instrumental music that I fell in love with. Mm. And it's been described as part human, part machine, which is so evident with the videos and the visuals that you've released. Um, but I always feel like with your music, there's such a through line of time being stretched and sort of like pixelating these organic elements like breaths and you using a lot of interesting samples in songs like Food Court. Yeah, Food Court. There are some Gujang samples in Food Court. And then there's like really heavily uh, Gujang samples in um, a song called uh, Drunken Fist, um, mm. which uh, a really amazing Gujang player uh uh, Wu Fei, who lives in Nashville, um, recorded a bunch of stuff for me to, to to sample for that song. So I know that you studied jazz at NYU. Do you feel like you were calling upon any of the any of that experience for this record? In terms of like harmonic language, it doesn't really come out too much in the record. Um, but definitely, I mean, my experience and who I am as a drummer is like fully shaped by my uh, time there. Uh, and so it, it definitely comes out rhythmically and like um, a lot of what I do is also sort of like finding things within improvisations to kind of make into themes and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. even though like 
Oh, there is like some bits of like just pure improvisation on on the record, but there's also a lot of it that's like called from me improvising and then chopping things up and then kind of organizing them. I love that. It fe- I love the, I get a sense of real freedom in there and a sense of you channeling your subconscious, which is something that I have been trying to challenge myself to do more because I'm a very um, analytical person and mm. I can pick apart things intellectually more than I should be when mm. I should just be following an instinct or going with the first thing that comes to mind because mm. generally that's the right instinct. I'm curious about how much you actively think about channeling your subconscious and your music and letting intuition guide you as opposed to being like, I want to write a song like this or I want to write a song like that. It's interesting because I don't think I've ever actually put them, put that my process into those words, but it is accurate. I think um, that I'm like channeling either my subconscious or just kind of like following the breadcrumbs of like, like it's extremely rare that I sit down and I'm like, I want to write a song like this uh, mm. and have any idea of like what it's going to be. I'd like to build things from scratch and I'd like to kind of like, and this is actually the same way that Sunlux makes music. A lot of the times the way we describe it is like, rather than sort of like creating the blueprint of a house and then like, and then building it, we're actually like designing a chair Mm-hmm. And then like mm-hmm. building the room around that and then building the house around that, if that makes sense. And definitely for my EP before this album, um, it was very much like just, I set like very st- strict kind of uh, limitations on myself, uh, which, oh, I broke a couple of them in some places, but for the most part, it was like, I wanted to make a fully sample-based electronic record. I wanted it to be... Um, completely played and not programmed at all. And I wanted it to have no overdubs and have no grid or click. Um, Mm. And so the way those kind of pieces came together, and a lot of them are very improvisational compared to the record, was basically me just like designing sonic environments on like this trigger system. uh, And then kind of just messing around with it until I found a thing. And then like that sort of became a theme. And then I found ways to like improvise from like point A to point B and then boom, like that's it. Like just like not be too precious about it, you know? Um, So actually that's a very good way to describe uh, my process. Uh, So thank you for that. (laughs) Oh yeah, you're welcome. I mean, I'm fascinated by jazz musicians because I was trained classically as Mm -hmm. I know that you started out that way as well, but with, classical piano, it's so regimented and it's so, there's one way to play it and Mm -hmm. this is the tempo and they give you notes in the actual um, score as to how soft or loud they want you to play it. And so improvising and using my subconscious more in my process is new to me. And Mm. so that's partially why I feel like I'm so drawn to your music. There's an aspect of your heritage that's so clearly intertwined with belonging and you have the Chinese character in the title, as mm-hmm. well as some of the other titles of, of the songs, such mm-hmm. as Lion Dance. Was there a moment in which you knew that you wanted to include your heritage in this body of work? I think it was something that I always, I've always kind of, throughout the process, it was something that was on my mind, um, kind of how to bring, culturally speaking, like some touchstones into the work. Um, it was important for me that the music that I make like have like some aspects of it that are 
related to my Chinese heritage. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to find a sound that like I related to that, like I could call my own in some ways, you know? Um, and so there were definitely things. So for example, like lion dance, the beginning of that came from me watching like YouTube videos of, um, lion dances, which is something like I grew up seeing. And there was one particular video where this drummer had this very like stilted, weird pocket that I really loved uh, for like a few bars, like at the beginning before everyone came in. And I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna like take this cell of an idea and kind of go from there and see what it grows into. And that's kind of what line dance came from. Um, and I don't know, I think in a lot of ways, I'm still just like poking around and kind of um, seeing how I want to kind of incorporate some of these elements in, in my work, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. and, in, and sometimes it's very obvious, like when there's like a guzheng sample, you know, and, and sometimes it's maybe less obvious. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know, I, and maybe you can relate to this, but I think one thing that I find is that with um, making my own music, um, because I my like identity is so, all over the place in a lot of ways and fractured like for a while it felt like a struggle to figure out what my music was going to sound like but I, in a lot of ways it's also like gives me a lot of freedom do you feel like you've been engaging differently in community with other asians since the pandemic began yes i mean for the well first of all there's like way more asian like artists and musicians young people like kind of like breaking out and like coming out and it's like awesome to see like this did not exist when we were even in college you know what I mean like oh yeah um and so I've done like a number of you know we did we did a live like a a, yes. a stream together and Ian and I did a benefit show for a company or a, a organization called 18 million rising to raise funds for uh, Asian awareness and I did a couple other similar kind of charity events um, for similar organizations uh, with like fully Asian bills. And it was something that I could have never dreamed of existing, you know? Um, and the same is obviously has happened in the film industry. Uh, like mm -hmm. I remember we got to be on set uh, for one day before the pandemic shut everything down for the movie that we scored Sunlux. And I just remember walking on set and like, it was like fully Asian cast. And I was just like, this is so crazy. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like there's, there's a lot of energy um, in the community and, and um, we're like finally making our mark, you know, <laughs> in, in ways that didn't exist before. Um, yeah. And before all of that too, I was, I did a, I played on a record and then um, and toured with uh, Kazu Makino from uh, Blonde Redhead, who was one of the first Asian faces that I ever saw like in indie music, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that was really cool to be a part of. Um, and yeah, I feel like for a long time, my life as a musician was, I'm, was the only, like the, one of the very, very, very few Asian people like in the, like, you know, you, you would be like one of the other ones where it, oh yeah, Charlene's over there doing their thing. It's fun to talk about and kind of reflect on how the landscape has really changed. Um, I'm excited to see where things go. Yeah. All right. Lastly, what advice would you give your younger self? 
don't worry as much about what other people think about you. <laughs> um, and that's something that I could say to my current self as well. You know, um, it's definitely probably like my most crippling thing just in my life is like being like worried about like what others might think of me in social contexts in the context of music in the context of any kind of like gig or work or anything like that it's just something that's like deeply ingrained in me that I uh have come to learn about myself in the past few years that I I wish uh I was more aware of at a younger age. So, yeah. That's it's a, it's a journey for everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Ian. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a real pleasure to talk to you and also just to like, I don't know, we haven't like seen each other or talked to each other in a long time. So it was cool, cool, to, cool to hang. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you again, Ian, for joining us. You can find him on Instagram at IanYHChang. Don't forget to check out Sunlux's new record, Tomorrow's Three, and Ian's solo album, Belonging, which is out now on all streaming platforms. Also, keep your eyes peeled for the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which Ian scored with Sunlux and which comes out next year. This show is created by me and produced and edited by Dave Yim. You can follow us on Instagram at goldenhourpod, and you can send us thoughts on any of these episodes by emailing us at goldenhourwithk at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Thanks.